Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Welcome to the Golf Central Podcast presented by TaylorMade and the all-new Sim Driver. The driver head was in need of a drastic change in order to provide more performance, so TaylorMade changed the shape altogether with their new Sim Driver, which allowed them to make it fast and forgiving where every golfer needs it, the downswing. The pros love the new shape, but the biggest reason TaylorMade changed the shape was to help make you into a better golfer. Check out TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information on the all-new Sim family. I'm Rex. He's Lab. We were together last week, socially distancing ourselves, uh, by and large, in Dublin, Ohio, at the Memorial. Uh, In back-to-back stops in Dublin, I want to get to that. It was an interesting experiment. Before we do, wildly impressive performance by John Rahm on his way to victory and number one in the world, which you wrote a great story on Sunday talking about this is something he has been dreaming about when he was very, very young teenager, I think is what he mentioned. I, I guess I want to start with, and this was a headline I saw and I, I kind of caught my attention. There is no asterisk with this. There was a penalty on 16 and I think he owned it and we all saw it. I think you and I both recoiled as soon as we saw it live. His ball did move when he put the club down behind it, but I don't know why that would ever be an asterisk. He still won by three strokes. It didn't have any impact on the outcome whatsoever. So I guess I'm asking you straight out of the gates, is there an asterisk along with this win? There isn't, but it was John Rahm's own words who said that there's going to be an asterisk on that shot. He wasn't saying on his victory. No one's saying that they're, that they're taking away uh, this, this signature victory for him on the PGA Tour. He's saying in that shot in particular, he said it was the best short game shot he's ever hit, especially considering the circumstances, especially considering what was going on with his dwindling lead at the time, especially considering the difficulty of that pitch shot short-sided on 16. He was saying that was the best short game shot of my life, and now it's going to be remembered as a bogey and not necessarily a birdie. I, I, I think the manner in which he won, Rex, uh, will really suit and serve John Rahm well in the future. You think about what he's been able to do on the PGA Tour. He won in, in Torrey Pines less than a year after he was removed uh, from playing collegiate golf at Arizona State. He won uh, in the desert in Palm Springs. And then he had the team victory with, with Ryan Palmer, and that was it on the PJ Tour. He's been very successful in the European Tour. He's won some signature uh, titles over there, especially in the Rolex Series. But this was really his signature victory on the PGA Tour. And to, to dominate what was the strongest regular season field ever, uh, according to the official World Golf Ranking, and lead by eight shots heading into the back nine. Yes, it got a little bit tense. Uh, towards the end there, but but the manner in which he won, I think, will serve him really well, especially now as we move into this major type season. I mean, he had been dreaming about being number one in the world for a long time. We had been talking about 
him possibly as a number one player. I mean, I'll give Phil Mickelson credit on this one. He called it back in 2016, even before he made it onto the PGA Tour, that he was going to be a top five player. And here he is sort of fulfilling that destiny. But I'm curious, like, which category would you put him in? And I guess this goes along the idea that what is his staying power? So is he going to be more like Rory, where he will bounce in and out of the rankings for extended periods of time? 10, 12, 20 weeks, whatever the case may be? Or is he going to be more like a Lee Westwood or a Luke Donald who makes a cameo and then sort of fades after that? I, I would pick the latter. I think he's going to have some staying power. And I'm curious your thoughts. Is that the latter or is that the former? Sorry, former. He's, you got me on that. Yeah, the former. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he certainly has staying power. His, his game is, is one that's built to last. He's not, uh, he's not, he's not Bryson uh, or, or Dustin Johnson whose games are built primarily – to hit the ball really, really far distances. Uh, he's, he's a much more complete player than that. His, his short game, his touch, his putting, his iron play was exceptional at the, at the Memorial, which was something that he's been working on over the past couple weeks. He's a more complete player, I think, than, than even Dustin Johnson is. And Dustin Johnson's had an incredible career on the PGA Tour. He's won 21 times, but yes, he only has one major. I think John Rahm, at, at age 25, he's going to have a lot of big victories uh, in the future, in the immediate future. And so that's why I think this, this memorial victory was so huge for him because it showed on a difficult setup that he had the mental makeup to get it done. We've been talking for years about what's holding John Rom back. What's the number one thing that everyone would say? It's his temper. Well, yeah, It's absolutely. his temper. It's his on-course maturity. And for him to weather that storm and to pull off the shots that he needed to coming down the stretch, birdieing 16, of, of course it became a bogey, and then having par on, on 17 and 18, uh, to, to me, showed that he does have um, the goods mentally and physically to, to stay in this position forever, you know, in the top five position for the next five years. It's all just going to matter of how he plays in the majors, whether he can actually uh, stay in this number one position for, for weeks on end. Can one shot be two things? Can it be the greatest birdie and greatest bogey that he ever made? Of course it can. So it can be two things, and that's what I'm asking. Like, in my mind, it's like, okay, that's why I'll go back to the asterisk comment. I don't know if you even have to put an asterisk on it. It was still an incredible up and down, whatever. The if, I would, if I chipped in for a six, it would still be a great triple bogey in my mind. And we're still – people are still on Twitter saying that John Rahm cheated, which is, which is outrageous. I was standing on the opposite side of the green – and I'm going to help you out as your friend here and, not, and, and advise you not to pick a fight with Twitter, but by all means, go. Okay. So I was on the opposite side of the green, and I actually said aloud to, to Will Haskett, who was on PJ Tour Radio, I said, wow, John Rahm was playing this really quickly. Like, he didn't take hardly any time at all to play that shot. I am willing to bet that John Rahm was not even looking down when he set his club down because he was scanning exactly where he wanted that ball to land. I don't think that he necessarily saw the ball move and then played a shot quickly. There's... To, to me, there's just no chance. And anyone who is accusing him of, of cheating needs to watch his post-run interview with Amanda Balionis. His reaction to learning for the very first time that that's what this was coming down to, that his ball potentially may have moved uh, on the 16th hole, that's the look of someone who's finding that out for the first time, not someone who has been trying to hide something for the past 45 minutes. It's just outrageous to me that you would want to take – that you would, first of all, you want to impugn his, his – integrity like this and second of all that you would accuse him of 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 cheating no i think his reaction to it pretty much does away with that maybe he saw it maybe he didn't I, i'm with you i don't think he saw it he, everything was playing so quickly and 
when I saw it, it was the camera angle that I was watching it on TV in the media center. It was zoomed in on the golf ball. That's really the only way you were going to be able to see it, even if you were standing on top of it. I'm not, which leads me to question what the USGA and the RNA's new ruling is about, you know, if you can't see it with the naked eye, is it really a penalty? So in this particular case, you, you kind of could see it with the naked eye. I'm not quite sure. It did need to be slowed down, the super, the super slow-mo. I, I will say in. Uh, it did need to be zoomed in. So I don't know where that line is. I guess that's still something that the rule makers are going to have to address. However, if you looked at his reaction, again, you're right. When Amanda told him that they needed to review it, he was stunned. And then when he spoke with us afterwards, it was he owned it. I don't think there was anything that he was trying to hide. Now, would that have been different if it came down to whether he won or didn't win or if he got pushed into a playoff? That, that could have gone into this, but no, I, I don't we'll think We'll never know, and, that, and that's why everyone's like, oh, he would have handled it differently. He wouldn't have had such class if it had affected the outcome. We don't know that you don't because know that. it didn't. Because it didn't. No, that's it turned a five-shot yeah. win into a three-shot win. Give him his due because he absolutely deserved it with the way he played. And I think, to your point earlier about the staying power, it, 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 was, it was a good point, and you look at all the focus right now on Bryson, and we will talk about Bryson because he had an eventful week as well. All the talk has been about how far he's hitting the golf ball, which is okay. We can enjoy that. He has certainly had some success with it. The best part about that post-round interview with John Rom is he, his face lit up when he talked about how many times he got up and down coming down the stretch like a true Spaniard, quote-unquote. Like in his mind, he was playing Seve. He was a 12-year-old kid out there saying to himself, what would Seve do in this situation? And he pulled it off. That's kind of the cool part. Yes, he can hit the ball plenty far enough. And yes, he hits his irons solid like Sergio Garcia and so many of the great ball strikers before him. But he loves every aspect of the game. That's why I think, and he's such a compelling figure because of, we know, his anger management issues on the golf course, that I do think he has staying power. And I think that's actually good for the game. Yeah, there's a, there's a completeness to his game. And there's also a consistency to his game in, in terms of, you know, what you're getting from John Rom each and every single time he tees it up. And it's just a matter of whether he, he hits it close enough that week or he, he gets it um, in the hole as, as quick as he possibly can. You, you got to remember, Ricks, this is a player who was playing in the NCAA championship in 2016. Four years ago, John Rom was playing in the NCAA championship. And now he's the third fastest ever to reach the number one, spot in the world rankings behind only tiger and jordan speed tiger of course is superhuman he he reached world number one less than a year after he turned pro but but john rom did it in about four years and so that's a testament to the consistency and it's also a testancy a testament to the completeness of his game he's going to have that on on display again this year in, in the majors and i would i would expect that he's he's really going to challenge for at least one of them uh, I, I think I would agree with that. Specifically, well, Wingfoot is the one that immediately comes to mind because simply, I mean, Mirfield Village was as hard of a golf course as they had played really probably since last year's U.S. Open. I mean, I don't know if I can really think back and think of a golf course that was harder. If you look at statistically, the, go- the greens were dried out, the rough was thick, and, and they told guys this was, it was going to be. But I think just the fact of the way he played it and the commanding performance, suddenly you have to start looking at him as maybe not the favorite, going into the rest of the majors this season, but certainly among the, the favorites. All right, I'm contractually obligated at this point to pivot the conversation to Tiger Woods, who did play four rounds, which is an accomplishment. However, right. did you see anything in his game that leads you to believe that he should be among the favorites in the major championships that are coming up? 
Uh, I thought his iron play was was certainly impressive. He finished inside the top 10 strokes gained, uh, approached the green for the week, which considering where he was leaving himself off the tee uh, was certainly an accomplishment. And, and Tiger Woods being uh, preeminent uh, ball strikers is nothing new. But I certainly thought there was, there was warning signs. I think you first have to start with his body, making his first competitive start in five months and the same issues that plagued him at Riviera were the same issues that cropped up again five months later at Muirfield Village. And it's the fact that his day-to-day back is it's, – it's, it's a day-to-day proposition how he's going to feel when he wakes up. You know, he could string together three good days, and we saw him on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. He looked fine. He was swinging freely. He was in good spirits. And then Friday, he could barely move. He was doing a one-handed finish. He couldn't turn. He couldn't clear. And then Saturday, he looked like a, a different person again. And so looking back at some of the statements he's made over the past two or three years, it's just a reminder of how day-to-day it really is and how much when he said that when he won the Masters, everything came together. And everything did come together in the fact that he was physically healthy enough to get through that week with that pressure on that walk and pull off those shots. So I think, I think this is the new normal in the sense that it's going to be really, really hard for him to have five or six consecutive days of feeling good, even though it was so hot in Dublin, Ohio, that you would have thought that he would have got through that with, without any concern. I would agree with you. And, and here's where I wish just once in his career, he would sit down and just have an honest and frank conversation with the media. When we ask the question, how many days, let's give it a month. Do you wake up feeling on the wrong side? Like you did, like he did obviously on Thursday, as opposed to waking up feeling like you on the right side, which he seems like he did the rest of the week. And he actually made the comment, and it seemed like it was a bit offhand, that, well, more days than not. And if that's really the case, if you're, we're talking, let's say, 51% of the time, he wakes up and is not 100% and can't go out there and, and he was not able to turn like he wanted to. You could kind of see it early. His driver swing, he didn't complete his back swing, and then it sort of unraveled on the back nine. You actually saw, saw him start moving a little bit more gingerly and grabbing at his back. It, so it got progressively worse. How many of those days – because if it's really 51 percent, I'm that's going to have that's a problem. I'm going to have serious question marks for him going forward. And look, I got out of the Tiger doubting business last April. I mean, that proved to me once and for all that look, there's nothing this guy can't do. That he can overcome so many things now to get back to that level, to win the Dozo again out of the Tiger doubting, doubting business. But if that's the case, statistically, I don't know how you sustain that for a prolonged period of time. He's 44. And he talks about playing until he's 50. But how do you do that when you wake up more days than not and you're going to have Thursday rather than Friday? I don't get it. And I think, I think it's instructive too, Rex, to look back at, at 2019 and some of the successes that he had. In the Masters, remember, he was, in a, he was in the final group. They played threesomes. And it was an early start. And it seemed like he was held together by a Band-Aid on that final day. It was like putting Frankenstein back together again on Saturday night, Sunday morning, trying to get him ready for the final round. And he was just able to, to be pushed across the finish line there. We know what happened after that. He didn't look good the rest of the season. What happened at the Zozo Championship? He looked great for three days. They had that Monday finish. You were there. And what happened on Monday? He didn't look good. It was a little cool. It was a little damp. And he wasn't moving as well during the restart of that final round. What happened at the President's Cup? He, to me, was clearly the best player on that U.S. roster. But on Saturday, he sat out both sessions, even though the Americans were trailing, because he didn't feel well enough. It is so hard for him to be able to string together five or six days. When he does it, he's still among the, the very best in the world 
but his back is such a day-to-day proposition that betting on him or banking on him or picking him to win is, is a fool's errand right now because I don't even think he knows how he's going to feel when he wakes up. Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. And, and again, this goes back to the idea that, look, how many times does he have to prove us wrong before we, we stop this nonsense? Like again, I just warned you against picking a fight with Twitter. Picking a fight with Tiger's legacy is also a bad idea. But if that's the math, if it's 51% of the time I get out of bed and I feel worse than I did the day before, that I just don't think – I don't know how you, can, you do anything. Forget about playing a professional sport at the highest level. I just don't know how you do anything. And so what do you, what do you think now for the, the short-term future? You look, you look at the aspects of his game. And we, we touched on the iron play, and it was still pretty good. He was terrible putting. We alluded to it in last week's podcast. We said that he's gotten progressively worse on the greens, which is to be expected for someone who's 44 years old. You look at the 74 players who made the cut. He was 56th on the greens. His driver swing uh, lacked all sorts of pop in it, uh, which certainly can be concerning when you, when you move now to TPC Harding Park, where he's going to need to carry the ball farther in what should be cooler, damp conditions. Do you think he plays Memphis? Yes or no? And why? This- before I get to that, this idea that you keep laying down that people just get worse putting as they get older. I, I specifically do. asked Brad Faxon about this last week, and he says there is no statistical proof of that. So quit being an ageist and just understand that some people are good putters and some people aren't. So find, in this particular find, case. Find people who got better as they age on the green. I'm going to advise you against picking fights with old people now too. So why, why don't we just go ahead and just stop picking fights with everyone you could possibly find. Eyesight gets worse as you get older, and Tiger stats have gotten progressively worse over the past two or three years on the greens. It is indisputable. You're assuming. You're assuming it is that. indisputable. I, to get to your question, though, and, and I will take the bullet here. I was the pool reporter on Sunday for Tiger Woods, which means that I was the one. The others were feeding me questions, but I was the one actually asking them. You questions. want all the credit for this? And, well, no, I don't. I'm taking full responsibility because it did not come off the way I wanted it to. And, and when it comes to asking Tiger Woods questions, it can I have be been very, there with Roy McIlroy. I know exactly what you mean. It, yeah, yes, you were last week, weren't you? Uh, it can get very, very tricky because you can't just out and out ask him, Tiger, are you playing Memphis? Because it's going to be, I don't know, I'll see. Day-to-day, we're going to have whatever. to see. You know, maybe I'll go to the Monday qualifier. There's all these comebacks that he, he loves to, to, to throw at you. So I was trying to get tricky. And I, I'll actually drop a name here, humble brag. It, it was Tom Rinaldi from ESPN, and he and I huddled. And this was like a mutual conversation between he and I and how can we get him to say yes or no for Memphis. And this is what we came up with. Tiger, after four rounds under your belt, is that enough for you to go into a major championship, the PGA Championship, and feel confident with your game? Great question. Answer- Tom Rinaldi, well done. Tip of the cap, my friend. And the answer was – but I'm the one that asked the question. And the and answer was – and I probably did. And the answer was, I, it will depend on if I need more reps or not. Do you need more reps was my immediate comeback. And Tiger, playing the game that he likes to play, competitive reps or reps? My answer, competitive reps. His answer, we'll see. More reps. There's no way to win that conversation. So the answer to the question about Memphis is, I have no idea. I feel like he should play. I feel like he's never gone there before, so there's no, no reason – for him not to. I don't know why he would not like a golf course he's never been to. But it is going to be hot. It is going to be draining. It's going to be the week before a PGA Championship. But he hadn't played in five months. So we can sit here and play this sparring game. I just don't know. I'm not going to be surprised if this Friday at 5 o'clock we see his name on the list. And I'm not going to be surprised if we don't. I simply think at this stage in his career, he's probably going to be more comfortable spending that time in South Florida 
working on the things he knows he has to work on, the putting, the short gain, all of those things, and hoping, because that's what it's boiled down to now, hoping that he catches those four days at Harding Park and he's on the better side of that 51%. Yeah, look, I think, I think my gut feeling is that it's unlikely that he plays. Should he play? The answer is definitely. Sure. Uh, as, as we talked about, there's nothing in his game right now that suggests he's ready to contend against the world's best on a championship venue. Uh, there's, just, there's just nothing there. And I think the, the putting is a significant uh, consideration. You, you're going to go to TPC Southwind, which has Bermuda greens. That's not going to help him at all for Harding Park. And so he needs to find somewhere. He, he talked about how he wasn't used to playing as much break as he was at Muirfield Village because his backyard greens – uh, in, in South Florida or when he plays at Medalist are, are different. And so he needs to either get up there early and spend some time uh, on, on bent grass greens and, and getting used to how the ball is traveling, or he needs to do some, some serious work on his ball striking. But it doesn't seem like he would, he would gain a whole lot uh, by playing TBC Southwind, which is going to be just such different conditions uh, than what he's going to face the following week in San Francisco. Should he, should he play? Definitely. Uh, do I think he will play? Probably not. I don't even think should. I'm not even going to go there now because I don't know. And this goes back to the Zozo last year. I mean, when I got on that plane to fl- fly to Japan, I did not feel like it was going to be the kind of week that Tiger oh, was going to be. Oh, absolutely not. There's no way I had any idea. Look, he, did, he doesn't do good on long plane flights, and I know he's flying Air Tiger, and he's comfortable, and he's got his own bed still. Those long flights are, are not a good recipe for him. It was cold. We dealt with the typhoon. All the things we had to deal with, there's no way I thought he even should have been there. I thought it was a little silly that he was there, and he ended up doing what he did. He wins and, and creates history. However, in this particular case, I, I agree with everything you just said. There, there's no good reason other than the folks on social media are going to scream reps, whatever that means, competitive reps versus real reps, whatever the case may be. And I don't think that he, any reps that he, he will get, he's guaranteed four rounds in Memphis, but it, of those four rounds, I don't think they're going to help him any more than in, it would spending time those four days at home in South Florida, working on his game, getting therapy, doing all the things he needs. To I do. think he'd rather protect his brittle body than have four rounds that aren't necessarily going to propel him uh, the following week in San Francisco. Well, and the, the bigger question, and we won't get into this for another three more weeks, will be the playoffs. Like, depending on where he goes, I think we had this conversation, get out of the plane yesterday. I think he's 42nd right now on the FedEx Cup points list. Will he play all three, three consecutive weeks of the playoffs? Nope. I tend to think he will because getting to Eastlake has been something that he has wanted to do in the past. And given that you saw, you saw what happened last year when he tried to play three in a row, he pulled out in the first, out well. yeah, per, he pulled out in the first event because of an ob- oblique strain and didn't make it to Eastlake after he played this is, the following week in BMW. This is the 51% again. I mean, the, the, yeah. this conversation goes back to if he falls on the right side of that 51%, then yes, he should play three in a row. Hopefully, hopefully getting to East. Like he doesn't need to do anything special, but he does need to go out and perform. And so I, I think he might do that, but this, that's a bigger conversation going forward. Uh, I wanted to pivot one last time and, and take a bit of a victory lap here. I believe for the last three weeks, we had conversations about Bryson DeChambeau. And he's and in the all- third segment. And all three of those conversations ended with me screaming something about, I want to see it at a major championship. That, that was the, the, the cross I laid down. Like, show me at a major championship. The Memorial was not a major, but I'll label it a mid-major. And Mirfield Village certainly played like a major championship venue. And what we saw out of Bryson was bad golf. Hold on. We need Kaz to, to cue up some podcast uh, audio from about two weeks ago when you said Bryson DeChambeau 
is the undisputed number one player in golf. And you've I believe the enough, second part, the second sentence enough, there was, I need to see that changer. He is the number one player in golf. And Rex, I got to tell you, a couple weeks later, he, he's not number one. He, he isn't. He's number seven. You want to know why? Because Bryson DeChambeau doesn't have as complete of a game as John Rahm. As John Rahm. I would say he doesn't have a completed game as Roy McIlroy. However, in my defense here, John Rahm's record since the restart, miscut in Colonial, T33, Hilton Head, T37, Travelers, T27. Couple reasons for that. Couple reasons for that. Absolutely. But I'm not getting – we're not going back to John Rahm because I I do want to fixate on this because I think that this is going to be going forward Bryson. That if you put him on the on those tracks where he can bomb it and hit it all over the map and there's no penalty, it's very, very simple. That yes, he can do things with the golf ball that others can't right now, and it's very, very impressive. If you put him at Wingfoot, or I don't know what to expect from Harding Park, to be honest with you. If if it plays like a major venue, which I hope it does, I just don't see that game working. And I think last week was a perfect example of that. Why not? Did you not watch him play last week? I did. I thought he looked exceptional on Thursday on a, on, a, on Wednesday in the practice round with Tiger. I said, I said this this guy could win by five or six. Well, uh, yeah, okay. I'll give him you know however many pro am titles. We'll, we'll give him the title. You know, eight hundred pro ams. Fine, he'll win that. I'll, I'll go ahead and blink on that one. I'm talking about what happens when the actual gun goes off when they're playing golf, real golf with cards in their hands, and it matters on Thursday and Friday. He just looked bad, and look, this this all came apart on Friday. And he is starting to become his own worst enemy when he hits it into the creek on 15, and then he pumps one out of bounds on 15, and then he pumps another one out of bounds on 15, and he almost pumps a third one out of bounds. And he gets in a dispute with rules officials, and his caddy steps in front of a cameraman. We can keep going on this. It wasn't a great day. Another caught-on-camera moment of petulance was was what that was, yes. Yes, and I think that he is in danger of becoming that player that everyone doesn't like that look there's a lot of reasons to like Bryson he's entertaining uh certainly from a media standpoint I, I like sitting listening to some of his nonsense now some of it makes me roll my eyes however I just don't know if he continues to go down this path if one is going to outweigh the other because I mean he didn't even deserve a second opinion is, is the part that's interesting here a rules official will tell you that look that if he's taking a drop, if there's some sort of dispute about where he should take a drop, then that deserves a second opinion. If your ball is out of bounds, that's a geography lesson. Your ball is here. The line is there. It's out of bounds. They just gave him a second opinion because he's Bryson. Just, just to humor him. Yes. And I think that that is starting to show a trend here, that they're having to handle him with such kick gloves that he is a problem child and it's only going to get worse. Look, I think, first of all, I think Bryson needs to grow up. And I think second of all, Ouch. there needs to be someone on the PGA Tour or someone in his inner circle that pulls him aside and says, stop, stop this. This is, you're, you're so worried about your brand and, and what people are going to think of you and if you're going to change the game. You just, you just need to dial it back. And I'm not sure if there's anyone on the PGA Tour who's, who Bryson is close enough to to give that advice to. I'm not sure if anyone in his inner circle Tiger. wants to step in and, and give him that. But Tiger, Tiger clearly hasn't because Bryson has not has not matured on the golf course. In fact, he almost seems to be getting worse. And he's, he's, his brand now is, is more petulance than it is awe-inspiring, which is, which is a shame because what Bryson has done to his body and his game with his total overhaul, it deserves to be applauded. It deserves to be praised. He, 
he set out to do something and he accomplished it. It wasn't, it wasn't his driver that caused him issues at Mirfield Village, Rex. I mean, Bryson off the tee was still gaining more than two shots on the field. It was what we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, a couple uh, head-scratching moments uh, strategy-wise, course management-wise, and also his iron play. Because when you're hitting it that far and requiring the technique that he is doing that, he's going to have a lot of short irons and wedges, and they're just not up to snuff. And that's where he, he was, was terrible uh, once again the, at, at Memorial. Look, he, he got away with it in Detroit by hitting some so-so and probably even substandard wedges. He couldn't get away with it on a test that firm, that fast, and that penal if you're not exact with your short clubs. And that's, and that's what he wasn't. And I think that's the major red flag when you get to the majors this year is that he's got the, he's got the power. And more often than not, he's putting it in the fairway and putting himself in position, but he's not fully capitalizing on it yet. And I'm not sure he's going to because that takes time to develop that aspect of his game. Well, just going back and going over the stats, and I hate going down this rabbit hole because you never really know what it means, but uh, strokes gain approach to the green last week, he lost six and a half strokes to the field as opposed to off the tee, which he gained almost four and a half. So I, that, that makes your argument for you. I mean, if you want to be yeah. a statistical. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's what the major red flag with Bryson, beyond the on-course maturity issues uh, that, we, that we've clearly seen and, and kind of the slippery slope that he finds himself on where what he, when he should be a fan favorite, he's actually now kind of enemy, public enemy number one. Uh, among golf fans, certainly on Twitter, he's become a, an easy target. I just wish he had someone on tour that he could talk to, who could give him advice, who could just sit him down and say, you need to stop this. Just dial it back and let your game do the talking for you. Because right now he's, he's kind of just digging his own grave. Well, and again, I'll go back to, he does have that person, but I don't know how compelled Tiger Woods would be to, to have that conversation with him. Because there is a genuine relationship between those two. And I think it, it's developed over the years. And um, someone inside Tiger circle was talking about a few weeks ago, they were both in the Bahamas together and he and Tiger spent some time on the range and, and Tiger was sort of experimenting with the single length clubs and everything. It, it is interesting to me though, that Tiger chooses not to be that mentor. And I don't know, you know, this goes back to the Marco mirror and the John cook days, because I think they legitimately tried to help Tiger along the way. And I think Tiger friendship is genuine. I just don't know how much he's willing to reach out and really help people in this situation. And I think right now, Bryson is a, is a genuine threat to Tiger in terms of getting win number 83 or, or winning another major. I think that's how he should view Bryson for the foreseeable future is that what this guy's doing is a threat. Now that hasn't stopped Tiger from, from helping out Justin Thomas, although that, that relationship, you know, it was, it was all fine when Tiger's on the couch and he's unable to, to compete against him. And, and JT was the first to admit that that advice has kind of dried up now that Tiger's back on tour and yeah. he's, he's winning again. And so I would, I would expect Tiger to, to, to lend, a, lend an open ear to Bryson, but I wouldn't think that he would necessarily uh, be as forthcoming with the advice as he maybe would have been four or five years ago. Yeah, I, I feel like running around my room with my hands in the air right now celebrating because uh, we've gotten 20 minutes in and we have not mentioned COVID-19 or the pandemic, or anything else that goes along with the times that we live in. That said, the European restarts its schedule this week at the British Masters. And this is the first of a six-event United Kingdom swing. It's the way they created the bubble. And I kind of want to equate it to what we just went through two weeks in Dublin. But my question to you would be, what do you think the European Tour has learned from the PGA Tour, who has been 
by and large, wildly successful. I think seven positive tests, over, over 6,000 tests have been administered. So if you did the math on those numbers, you have to be happy with that. But what do you think stands out that Europe's going to pinch from the PGA Tour? I think that it all comes down to player and caddy accountability. I mean, these, these players and caddies are on their own. We, we know exactly where they're going to be for five or six hours a day. And other than that, they are on their own. And it is their responsibility to take the pandemic seriously enough and to not engage in behaviors that put them in high-risk situations. And by and large, we have not seen players do that. I think that was the, the fear. I remember talking about this in, in late May and early June, is that when you get through five, six, seven events, do players just kind of take it easy and, and, and kind of relax knowing you know, that, they're, that they, they, they kind of get comfortable living in this new normal? And by and large, players have not done that. They've, they've remained vigilant uh, with the protocols, and I think that's great. I think now the, the situation in the United States is more serious uh, pandemic-wise than it is right now in the U.K., uh, I th so I think it makes that vigilance a little bit easier to accept in the sense that uh, things are a little bit more dire here and, and the, the risk of a shutdown or an outbreak is higher. Uh, but I think that's the number one takeaway the PGA tours that they've done a terrific job with testing and the players and caddies should be applauded for, for remaining in this quote unquote bubble and doing the best job they can to protect not only themselves, but the rest of the field. And I will say, and this is just anecdotally that having covered the first two events of the restart at colonial and Hilton head, and then the last two weeks, essentially in Dublin with the workday event and Memorial last week that they're, they are taking it more seriously. I'm not going to say they were cavalier. I'm not going to say that, that they dismissed the rules. However, there were examples of players going out to dinner or whatever the case may be. I, I, you didn't see that the last two weeks. I think there is a level. And maybe this – I'll give the tour some credit here. They, they didn't threaten them, but they made it very, very clear that if we find out that you did something that was outside of our guidelines, you're not going to get your stipend. We're not going to be there to stand with you. If you did everything we asked you to do, you're going to get that $75,000 and we're going to make sure you have all the resources to move on. That being said, I think the one thing that they're going to look at is how you have to adjust to everything on the fly. And the example, of course, is the COVID kids, you know, the guys who continue to test positive, the Nick Watneys of the world, the Denny McCarthy, you know, he, he tested out of that, that group, but the Harris Englishes where Dylan these guys can Dylan Fratelli, these guys continue to test positive. And, you know, talking with Dylan, he was told by his doctor, look, expect this to last for a long time. You know, our experience is you're going to continue to test positive. And the tour reacted to that. And they found a way to get him back into the lineup. I think they're going to find a way to get them back in the general population, from what I've been told. I think the tour is going to finally realize that, look, the CDC says these players aren't contagious. There's no reason for us to keep them in a separate locker room and separate tee times in a separate part of the range that let's just follow the CDC guidelines here. So I think the European tour, if they're going to learn anything is that you have to be flexible. Don't write these things in stone and say, this is the way it's going to be because the situation on the ground is going to change dramatically. I think the travelers championship to me, Rex was kind of the seminal moment of, of where the PGA tour was headed. They could have gone two directions when you got to the Travelers championship, you had a, you had a rash of, of WDs because either they tested positive or they came in contact and they withdrew out of a quote abundance of caution. I think that could have gone two ways at that point. And if, if commissioner Jay Monahan does not have that address and does not scare the bejesus out of players and anyone listening to his address that they need to shape up or this is potentially going to get shut down again. 
uh, I think that that address solidified it. And we really haven't had all that many issues since then. So to me, that's the seminal moment of this restart. And I think Keith Pelley can learn a lot uh, from that type of leadership as well. Okay. On Sunday, there was another competition. It was the Open for the Ages. Did you watch this? I did not. I was a little busy covering the tournament. Well, it was early. You had plenty of time. I I was working on my Monday scramble. Actually, you know what? You know what, Rex? I was sleeping in because I have not been able to sleep in. I haven't been on the road road since since March. And so I slept in until 9. Oh, this is a, this was, is a comment about having glorious. kids. Isn't it? it is glorious. It is. Yes. All right. All right. Uh, glorious. Well, all right. Well, you can put your finger away because it, I, I'll give you the outcome of the open for the ages. And this is this was a huge upset. Spoiler I was alert. interested. Spoiler alert. Uh, everyone knows if you watched it. Everybody knows. Jack Nicholas beat Tiger Woods, and this was essentially fan voting in. It was former Open champions. They were playing at St Andrews. Uh, they they came up with some formulas and some t- statistical ways to match these two players up head to head. And Jack wins by one, 16 under to 15 under. It, it, it proves to me two things. One, it kind of renews my faith in, in social media because it seems to me social media lives as prisoners of the moment. And for them to look, and for whatever reason, I don't know what that reason might be, that Jack deserved that more than Tiger, good for them. The second part of this is that's crap because there's no way Tiger's losing to Jack at St. Andrews. Yeah, there's just no I'm, – I'm really surprised by this because, as you mentioned, social media tends to be prisoners of the moment, and they tend to skew younger. You're not having a bunch of 80-year-old Jack fans going on websites and, and voting and, and, and doing that sort of thing. And so I was shocked because Tigers played arguably the best golf ever uh, at St. Andrews in, in 2000, and yet that wasn't quite enough to uh, get the title here. I, I, I really was humored by the scoreboard. Um, <laughs> Uh, especially the, the leaderboard, excuse me, on the, for the final round. Rory, Rory shot a closing nine under 63 uh, to vault all the way into a tie for six with Louis Wustazen, of course, the, the 2010 Open champ at St. Andrews. But did Rory just play terribly for the first three rounds and then try and backdoor his top 10 like usual? Uh, do, we need to roll, do we need to roll back the ball since he's shooting 63 at St. Andrews? Um, I mean, that appears to be the round of the day by three. Yes, uh, that, that's very impressive. And he's done it before, I guess, at St. Andrews, although he's gone the other way as well in balloon. Yeah, 63-80. So it could be a 63 or an 83. You never really know which way you're going to end up on the wrong side of the draw. But And this goes to the idea, your ageism, that old people pop worse, is in this particular case, old people came out in droves to vote. Not only did Jack beat Tiger, but Seve, Tom Watson, Nick Faldo all beat Rory McIlroy, all beat Jordan Spieth. I mean, Tom Watson, greatest Lynx player of all time. How is he only tying for fourth? Uh, well, who would you put him ahead? You would put him above ahead of Seve? Yes. Well, I, I don't know about that. And I would have liked, no, liked to at least see Watson in a playoff. He's the greatest Lynx player of all time. All right. And no Zach Johnson in the top ten, who also won an Open at San Diego. But we got, but we got Spieth, who lost to Zach Johnson when he could have uh, won the third leg of the, of the slam that year. Yes. Yeah, great point. Very, very good point. All right, before, uh, let's get out of here on this. And I was just kind of glancing around the internet. It, July 23rd, one year out from the Olympics. So if I read you some names, all right, I'm going to read you some names off the top of this leaderboard. If I read you these names, you tell me which one of these players is not going to make it. This is top 10 in the Olympic rankings right now. You tell me which one of these players is not going to make it. Rom, Rory, JT, Webb Simpson, Brooks, Bryson, Adam Scott, Tommy Fleetwood, Hatton, Mark Leishman. Which one of those top 10 is not going to be in Tokyo next year? Brooks. 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 
Why? Injuries? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, I think he's – I mean, he's, he's clearly out of sorts now, so I don't have high hopes for good major finishes to, to end 2020. And I think, I think we're eventually looking at knee surgery for Brooks. He, he mentioned last week that he had an MRI and that nothing's changed and that he's still a little bit of discomfort and that, quote, we'll, we'll figure it out when the time comes. Well, there isn't a time to have surgery for the rest of the year. We don't, you don't have that three- to six-month break. And so uh, I, I think this downward slide, unfortunately, is going to continue for Brooks until he can get back under the knife. So I would say Brooks is my, is my answer there. All right. Well, that, that shot, that comes as a – that's the second biggest upset after Jack beating Tiger in the Open for the what do you ages. What do you think? Adam Scott. I don't know if Adam Scott's ever going to play again. Well, Adam Scott's not going to play in the Olympics. Fair enough. I, I wasn't, we weren't having that conversation. I was saying out of that group, which one is not going to qualify for the Olympics. Who's going to leapfrog him? You already I said leash. Cam, Cam Smith? I, I don't know. I mean, someone's going to have to, someone from Australia. Jason Day? Like it's, I the, don't the know ghost, when we're going the, to see Adam Scott again. Is the, is the ghost of Jason Day going to show up? Uh, maybe. Uh, Jason Day actually looked decent last week. That is I thought, I thought Adam Scott was, was targeting Memphis for a return. Uh, that's what we've heard, but he is... Hiding away in Australia, away from the pandemic, and happy as can be. He may not ever. I don't. I do not. I do not blame him. I, yeah, I don't blame him. All right. I will see you next week. This has been the Golf Central Podcast, presented by TaylorMade and the all-new Sim Driver. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.